1: know the story of Judas according to the Gospels, but due to the introduction of this Gospel of Judas to our humanity from the Nag Hammadi, we now have a clear picture of who he was and who he is. And primarily what we seek to understand in our Gnostic tradition is the beauty of this divine narrative and how it teaches us something psychological about ourselves, primarily something that we must do in our daily life. We look at these texts practically. What do they represent? These are not mere historical documents of some archaic past. They represent reality here and now. It might seem unusual and controversial that this figure of Judas, given what we know from the common beliefs today, was actually a great initiate who taught with his life a necessary process in the path of spiritual initiation, what we must do and the dangers within ourselves. It's important to reflect that any scripture is a narrative and that these represent principles. These principles are living they are within us. They are not something dead or literal, historical. We say this because given the, the novelty of the gospel of Judas, we have a very different perspective about who he was. Primarily that he did not betray Jesus but merely played a role he was doing his, his duty, which he did not want. He was told you must play the role of Judas, the betrayer, who is a symbol of how in us, our own mind betrays divinity. We may be an apostle, a religious person, very devout, very spiritual, and yet in our minds and hearts, and in our actions, we contradict the law. We love God, but we love passion more. And this is the great dilemma that we all face in the reality of this scripture. And so the Gospel of Judas hopefully may vindicate this misconception that narrative is something strict, literal, factual, a moment of the past. Instead, if you study something like a book, or a drama, or a play, We know that each character represents something deeply. And we don't get mad when an actor plays a role. We don't get mad at Joaquin Phoenix for playing a psychopath or Ray Fiennes as a concentration camp commandant in Schindler's List. We admire their ability to express something very true We don't condemn them. In the same way, Judas is an actor. Each of the 12 apostles represent parts of us that we need to understand and cultivate. And so this drama, the passion of Christ is something we have to live in ourselves. We have to become both the hero and the villain, or we are both hero and villain. And we have to understand the dynamics of all these shifting factors, which manifest as we are discovering ourselves. Each of the 12 apostles of Jesus of Nazareth had to represent their role in the Christic drama. Judas Iscariot did not want to represent the role that fell on him. He asked for the role of Peter. However, Jesus had already firmly established the role that each of his disciples had to represent. Judas had to learn by memory the role that he had to represent. And this was taught to him by the master, Jesus himself, from Samal and Hell, Devil, and Karma. Therefore, Judas never betrayed the master. And it's important to reflect, if Judas is a symbol, what is he? He is our ego. He is our mind. He is lust. He is anger. He is pride. He is fear. He is temptation. He is us. He is the self that fights the adversary within our own psychological universe, our divinity who must work with and understand and comprehend. We also have to understand that if there were no conflict, if we did not have some type of defect to work on and eliminate, we could not extract wisdom. Because wisdom is born from contrariety, opposition, struggle. And so what does Judas teach us? Literally in the gospels, he hangs himself. He's teaching us psychological death. All that is not God must die so that we may be born again. The soul may be extracted from the shell of our own imperfections, which traps us and keeps us in a cage. The Gospel of Judas is related with the dissolution of the ego. The cosmic drama of Christ would be impossible to represent without the role of Judas. This apostle is then the most exalted adept, the most elevated amongst all the apostles of Christ, Jesus. Who is he? Let us break down his name. From the Greek, Judas, or Judah Iscariot. In Hebrew, we read right to left, Yehuda, Ish, Kariot. Yehuda, Judah. This is the divine name. This is the name of Christ, the Lion of Judah, the divine. You even see the sacred four-letter name of God, yod He vav He, The Tetragrammaton, Jehovah with the addition of the Hebrew letter Dalet, which is literally translated door, the door that leads to divinity. We even look at symbols like the the Kabbalistic tree of life. The mysteries of sacred knowledge is Da'at, beginning with Dalet, the door to the higher mysteries. Ish Keriot, Ish traditionally means man. And Kariot was a city in the Middle East. Judah, man of Kariot. Ish, more importantly, also means fire. The fire of Christ, the energy of divinity. Kariot, or Karia can mean city. So Judah, fire of the cities. But that fire is dual. That fire can warm up the kitchen or it can burn down our house. That fire is spiritual, and how we use it determines its purity or its imperfection. The name Yudah is cited in the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verse 35. And Leah conceived again and bare a son, the twelfth, and she said, Now will I praise Yada, Yodhavah, the holy name of God, Jehovah. Therefore she called his name Yehuda, Judah. We know Judah is one of the most exalted tribes of Israel. Twelve tribes, twelve zodiacal signs. Yehuda, Leo, the power of the light. Who is Judas in us? That light of Yehuda, which is pure above, enters us and is modified on our, based on our actions. What have we made Judas in us? We've made him into a devil. This card of the eternal tarot represents passion or the tempter. This is us, psychologically speaking, spiritually speaking. When we are filled with negative elements, egotism, we are demons. We don't reflect the light of Christ. Perfectly. We're like a prism. We channel that light and we condition it like a bottle, like a glass. When we're angry, we see through anger. When we're lustful, we see through lust. And so that light is modified in us, heaven above, but becomes diabolic based on our actions. This is the famous Lucifer of which people are so scandalized. Luci. From Latin, bearer of light. The word Lucifer is translated in the King James Bible from the original Hebrew, Hilil ben Shahar, which means glorified Son of the Dawn. That light is pure in heaven, but due to our mistakes, we've made him into a, a beast. How art thou fallen from heaven, Hillel Ben-Shahar, Lucifer, glorified son of the dawn. This is from Isaiah chapter 14. It's interesting that Hillel, meaning praised one, is also contained in in the word Hallelujah. Yah is the Father, the divine. How do we praise Yah? How do we praise divinity? when we conquer our own lust, our own passions. When we conquer the demon in us, we eliminate the blackened sepulchre of our past. We resurrect as a spirit. We purify ourselves. And therefore, hallelujah, praise be to Yah. It's interesting that this devil figure, the tempter in us, is shown in the book of Job to be given permission by divinity to tempt him. The devil says, Truly your son Job will blaspheme to your face if you let me tempt him. When I give him hardships and ordeals and struggles and suffering, he will curse you and he will not remember. And Jehovah says, The bed is on, let us see if he is successful. Divinity allows this figure to tempt us, but why? We could not prove ourselves spiritually if we were not tested, if we did not face the fire of adversity, the anvil of suffering, the smithery that forges the soul from iron through heat, cold and extremes to become something perfect. The blackened coal of our mind must be through intense pressure and ordeals transformed into a diamond. This is the mystery of medieval alchemy, but this power obviously is very subtle and very difficult, which is why very few masters actually are born. How art thou cut down to the earth, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the abyss. That power is cut down to the earth. We've taken that divine principle and made it filthy. And this is the power that truly commands when it is integrated in the soul. You can think even in Jungian psychology, the shadow. Integrate that part of yourself, that it may be aggressive or negative, spiteful, hateful, and transmute it. Turn anger into strength and serenity, sweetness that really knows how to command with with gentleness, without force. And this is the power that can take us to heaven because Luciferos is the bearer of light, and this is Judas. So while I mentioned that this figure, which can exalt us to the heights and which is now in the abyss, is both um, ourselves, but also the principle of Judas. We can say that this force of Lucifer is really a part of divinity, a very controversial one an aspect that has to give us certain situations in life that are going to bring out the worst in us so that by being tempted psychologically, we understand our weaknesses and change. Temptation is fire. Triumph over temptation is light. But this power is obviously very controversial. And this is the power of Judas, the power of the light of Judah. We have here from the Gospel of Judas the introduction of the scripture wherein Christ sits with uh, his apostles to have a meal, to teach them. In essence, the real heights of divine knowledge are so synthetic and refined and subtle that they escape definition. And in fact, this light is controversial. Obviously, you look at the lives of the great prophets, how they were constantly persecuted, scandalized. People were offended deeply by what they taught. And yet we know from experience and from their character that they had a knowledge that was so transcendental that despite not understanding the full depth of who they are, we still feel their power. We are inspired. And so likewise, the apostles approached Christ in the Gospel of Judas inspired by his light. But he is very difficult to understand. And in fact, even the apostles in the Gospel of Judas become scandalized in the same way that people are scandalized today when they hear about Lucifer and that we need that tempter to become strong. Now one day, he was with his disciples in Judea and he happened upon them as they were assembled together, seated and practicing their piety When he drew near to his disciples as they were assembled together, seated and giving thanks over the bread, he laughed. The disciples said to him, Master, why are you laughing at our prayer of thanksgiving? What is it we have done? This is what is proper. This obviously represents a type of mentality. And while there are levels of initiates or degrees of saints and masters who have some knowledge of the light, some development, Even they don't understand someone like Jesus, the master of Baromento in Greek, his sacred name. And so he laughs. It seems controversial or, you know, impious. He's laughing at their meal. They're giving thanks, being very humble and praying. And in a sense, you can you can gather that they're almost sanctimonious. Not a true piety, but a type of veneer. And so Christ laughs at them. You think you are pious, you think you are holy, but you are not. Only the Christ is holy, the light. And that power, the light bearer, you could say luciferos, which above in heaven is Christ, is pure, laughs at the soul. Who thinks that it knows? Because of our pride, our, maybe even our virtues, the things we think are good. So this light is controversial. What's interesting is that that which is really sacred is far beyond our sanctimoniousness, our adoption of perhaps a attitude, maybe a a religion, a belief system, a faith. These things can change with time, but that which is eternal is truly transcended. So the sacred is beyond false piety even virtue. And so it is the duty of the light, the duty of Luciferus to show us that. We think we're great. We're good. We're on top of the world. We have these qualities, good aspects of self, but in truth they blind us to the full reality of who we are. And we make mistakes because we're not actively seeking and looking. And so what's interesting about the next few verses and in relation to Judas himself, as we'll see introduced soon, is that in a way these apostles are masters. They represent aspects of our own inner being and you can say that in the full spectrum of who we are we have many qualities and aspects represented by this tree of life. Different spheres of being which all form a unity and the Christ is obviously the top of this glyph, the heights, who organizes and is orchestrating the path so that all these principles can be integrated. And so these apostles and us, these qualities of being, are striving to know Christ, but also struggle because that which is truly transcendent is very difficult to grasp. And so Christ, out of compassion, says, you don't know what you do, and therefore you may not know what is truly proper? And this is a very deep metaphor, a deep symbol. He answered and said to them, I am not laughing at you. You are not doing this out of your own will, but because in this way, your God will be praised. He says, you think you're good? Let me, let me mock you. Right? Because he's laughing at their, the dinner, and they feel offended, not understanding that it's coming from a really divine Transcendent place, and so he's testing his disciples to see what they will do. And it says, through this contrariety, this struggle, you will praise your inner divinity by conquering the ordeal, the challenge. If you've studied Zen Buddhism, you know that certain Zen teachers will be very harsh, in a sense, like they really test their students to see their caliber, see what they're accompli- what they can accomplish. But obviously, these initiates say, they said, Master, you are, the, you are the Son of our God, meaning, you are the one we praise. Jesus said to them, How is it that you know me? I tell you the truth, no generation will know me among the people who are with you. And in a way, this is almost the greatest mockery. These apostles think we know Christ, we're sitting at his table, and yet he says, you do not know me. And this is a very hurtful thing for them to hear. Obviously, but it shows you that there were levels of light, levels of knowledge. When the disciples heard this, they began getting angry and hostile and blaspheming against him in their minds. So this shows us something very interesting. We may think we're virtuous and kind, and yet the devil, Lucifer, will show us. Our inner Judas will show us where we really stand. But obviously, the apostles don't understand, and Jesus has to kind of break things down for him, for them. And he says that, really, the apostles are basically following their own God. And almost in a sense, it can mean almost idol worship, a false God. It could also mean, you know, they have some connection with their own inner spirit, some level of knowledge and development. There's a bit of a dual meaning here. It's very delicate. There's multiple layers in this narrative. And that they get angry because they are attached to power. And this is the great danger of spirituality, having power and abilities and hierarchy in heaven. Because until you get to the very end, beyond this tree of life, up the dimensionality of nature and being, to the source, we can fall. Jesus recognized that they did not understand and he said to them, Why has your concern produced this hostility? Your God who is within you and his powers have become angry within your souls. Let any of you who is a strong enough person bring forward the perfect human being and stand before my face. And he's basically showing them and testing them. You wish to know me fully like Moses on Mount Sinai. Stand before me naked in soul. And only the truth can withstand that severity. And that is the great heroism of an initiate. To be willing to stand before divinity face to face, as stated in like Exodus in the Jewish Bible, to really commune as a perfect human being. No imperfection. No ego. And you, you want to know who the one who does it? All the apostles say, we are strong. But none of their spirits dared to stand before him except Judas Iscariot. He was able to stand before him, yet he could not look him in the eye, but he turned his face away. So among the apostles, Judas, according to Samuel and Vior, was the most exalted, because he said, "I am willing to die. I don't want to have any attachment to myself. I want to be free." And Christ has him approach, but Judas does not look him in the eye, because in a way, like even the story of Moses, when he says, "I wish to see you fully." Jehovah said, you cannot unless you die, because the power is so intense. But Judas Iscariot is precisely the power of the light, which in us is mixed, that comes from the highest source. So when we talk about the universe, cosmology, the 13 aeons of the Gnostic scriptures, we know that we have this top Trinity of the tree of life and this source of divine cosmic abstraction which originates all life. This tree of life is the map of the universe and represents levels of nature, which in different densities, from the most abstract above to the most material below. And the further up you go, the less individuality you, we have and the more the presence of divinity is manifest. So at the very heights, we have the Trinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Christianity, which is Keter Hukma Bina, the light. And that light emerges from a source. That source is known as Barbelo, among the Gnostics. Bar meaning fire, Bel meaning light. And in Hebrew, we refer to this reality beyond manifested existence as Ein, Ein Sof, Ein The nothing, the limitless, in the limitless light. That limitless light, Ain 4, is barbello, fire and light. It's a, not literal, but it's spiritual state of being, which is very divine in which all the self-realized masters are ascending to like angels in some paintings like Gustave Doré, especially Paradise Lost or the Divine Comedy, ascending towards a, a light that is the Ain 4. And you can experience this in your, in meditation or in dreams. That level of being. And Judas basically says how he recognizes Christ, that the light of Luchi that he must bear up his spine again through the path, the return, originated from the Absolute, these three aspects of, of the cosmic being. And because he recognizes where this light comes from, he is the only one willing to make the necessary steps to approach divinity. Judas said to him, I know who you are and from what place you have come. You have come from the immortal realm of Barbello and I'm not worthy to pronounce the name of the one who has sent you. To really approach these heights, we have to radically die as an ego. And in a sense, the Master Judas is remarkable in this, I mean the historical Master Judas, because according to some on viewer, over the centuries, he's obviously accrued a crude, uh, horrible reputation. People mock him, ridicule him, crucify him, condemn him. And yet he doesn't have any qualm with it. else says he is dead psychologically. He is really dead. No, can it be provoked? And so he's helping certain souls internally very deeply because he is working to approach as the master in this universe. The heights. But Judas in us is that light of the, really the light of divinity, which while mixed and impure with imperfections, still recognizes the origin and wants to go back. So this is the path of supreme mystical death, which is represented in the 13th arcana of the Tarot. We call this immortality. These hieroglyphs from the Egyptian pantheon represent principles of being, they represent ordeals and challenges one has to face in the work, but also the anecdotes, the solutions. You see a man harvesting wheat with a scythe, and the scythe is a symbol of Saturn, of death, that we have to qualify in our psychological work by removing the chaff, the imperfections, so as that we can get the harvest. This is a spiritual symbol of alchemy. And Judas, is an initiate who is attaining immortality, because he is radically dead. Dead as a self. And due to this, he is the most exalted initiate. Someone mentions in questions about the great work how this apostle, when I'm talking about the physical master Judas, is the most exalted among the twelve. Judas is the most exalted apostle, the one who is most dead, the highest of all of them, after Jesus is Judas to such an extent that it is said that the day the great Kabir, Jeshua ben Pandira, Jesus the Christ, enters the Ain, the unmanifested Absolute, Judas will enter with him. Judas is sufficiently prepared to enter the Ain, the Absolute. And this cannot be understood by secular people because they interpret the Gospels to the dead letter. So 13, the 13th Aeon, the 13th repentance of Pisces Sophia is this the origin, that is the height of heights, the goal. But to reach that point, one has to be, have no self, only divinity there. And for that process, we have to work through a path of initiation to purify elements of our psyche as we gradually go higher, spiritually speaking, up levels of being. And it's also important to emphasize that to reach the Ain, the nothingness, the void, the source, barbello. We have to, um, it's very difficult to do, very challenging Few do it. But here we see that Judas, the master obviously is getting prepared. And this is lastly, why we study the necessity of temptation. So as you saw briefly in the gospel of Judas, we kind of set some parameters, of which we're going to elaborate in our next lecture, how by understanding our own mind and how we are tempted and how we betray divinity in ourselves. We learn to confront our weaknesses. And only by confronting our weaknesses and our self and great ordeals, great crises, can we fully disintegrate imperfection and extract that which is pure. We whiten the brass. We polish the devil. The devil is all blackened in us. and We polish him and we, he becomes Luciferos, bearer of light. Therefore, Judas has his gospel, the gospel of the dissolution of the ego. Thus, without Judas, there can be no cosmic drama. No. How could the cosmic drama be developed if there is no Judas? Meaning, if we don't face the um, faults of our mind in the worst circumstances, we can't grow. And therefore, it was necessary for the cosmic drama to be developed. So it was necessary for someone to initiate that drama. And that is Judas. So Judas, again, backtracking to the beginning, played a role. He played the tempter. And by giving him to the authorities so that he can live his passion, they taught through their body of flesh and bone a psychological work. Because this drama is a symbolic narrative. So... If you have questions, feel free to ask.
0: So you talk about
2: Judas and Lucifer, and I get that, you know, I think what you're saying is Judas is like our ego, the part of us that, you know, goes against our spiritual virtues and our spiritual goal. And so that ego betrays Christ and thus has to die as a consequence, because the part of us that is contrary to all goodness in us, and betrays the goodness in us has to die but then when you're talking about lucifer lucifer is more temptation and i always understood these two to be distinct Dis- distinct parts of the psyche and distinct parts of the work that lucifer is like a force of temptation within us maybe it will act through ego but i'm not sure how these two are I mean, it felt like they were kind of equated here and I'm wondering if you can clarify that. Are they the same or are they distinct? And if so, how?
1: We have ego, which is our defects. Lost pride, anger, imperfection. And that ego traps light. Lucifer, uh, Lucifer is the light of Christ, divinity. But that light mingles within the ego and so while we have our own being, Lucifer, that gives us ordeals, tempts us, he's showing us what egos need to be disintegrated. So we have our own self, the ego, and then we have Lucifer, the being. And he's mixed inside of us. So
2: the Lucifer you're talking about in this lecture is the fallen Lucifer that is mixed in with ego, is is necessary like ego is necessary for our spiritual development, right? Because as you mentioned, we need some kind of resistant force that we're forced to develop strength and define ourselves in order to overcome. But Lucifer is a distinct force from Judas. If you're, is Judas the ego?
1: So, it's a good, good question. Because there's, there's a, there was a, any Gnostic scripture, there's a lot of nuance. Many levels. Yeah. Many levels of meaning. And with ego, we stay stri- strictly as the devil. And we can say is shaitan, our adversary that we want to conquer, our defects. Lucifer is the being. Is the light of Christ, and that light um when it's mixed in us, is again trying to show us our defects so that we can eliminate them, and in a way, our own ego is is in one level is Judas, our own ego of was, which is uh, maybe an apostle or you know, dressedless as like a saint, has to go, but then you got Judas in one level, you can say is, is also Lucifer like there's a almost a gradation because you see that. Above in heaven, that light is very divine, but down below in us, when it's mixed, is uh, satanic. But obviously the goal of the being, Lucifer, is to show us our errors so that we can free him. He is Prometheus in the Greek myth. He's chained to the rock of suffering. He's chained to us. Our ego is like a stone. You know, it's heavy and it keeps us down in Malkut, this physical world, hell. And in the myth too, because Prometheus gave fire to man and was punished by Zeus, he eternally had to suffer a vulture eating his liver. And We know that that is a symbol of how our own passions, our own ego steals the, the light, the fire of Lucifer and makes it blackened. And so Lucifer, that part of our divinity is in pain. He wants us to conquer him. And this is the great mystery that people don't understand because Unfortunately, this figure is a caricature in a comic strip when understand today. Lucifer the being, ego defects below. Judas is both, in the inferior sense, our own ego, but above, Yehuda, the light of Judah, is Christ. But there's a great drama because he's mixed and he wants us to conquer him. And the problem is if we are tempted and we don't conquer, he suffers. But if he doesn't tempt us to show us our mistakes, he suffers. And that's the great dilemma. That's why he's chained to a rock. He has to repeat, saying, come on, wake up, man. You know, you are you really need to get over this and you're suffering. And so it repeats the ordeals until we hopefully do. Sure. Um,
2: you mentioned he... Um... He didn't want to do the role, sure. but did he go to a process, like an inner work, before he did that? Did he um, betray Jesus in a conscious way, or uh, did he go, did he knew that would, that would happen?
1: He, he knew it would happen, and Jesus told him, you have to play this role, and he didn't want to do it. He said, I want the role of Peter, and the role of Peter is alchemy, like marriage. Golden key, silver key, how to marry, what a marriage entails spiritually. It's beautiful, right? It's the beautiful path. And he says, no, you're Judas. You have to play the tempter. He didn't want the role. And if you ever read The Flight of the Feathered Serpent, um, included by in the book by Armando Carsani, in the second half, which is actually the manuscript Judas gave him, you see that he's clarifying his story, and he, and he explains the pain he went through. He did not want to do it. In a way, he did, not, he did not betray Christ, but Christ said, you have to turn me into the officials so that we can let this drama show itself and we can teach humanity. And even in that, that book, Judas says, when I handed him over to the authorities, it was like a mirror that reflected again and again into eternity. Because he said that action is a moment of transcendence. It's showing the drama that we all have to face that is repeated again and again through any initiate who walks the path. So, we call this lecture, Transcendent Betrayal, because through that process of confrontation and ordeals, we can find a way out. And in a way, Judas did not betray Jesus. Jesus told him, you have to do this, even though he really suffered for it. But because he was willing to deny himself and to do that action out of love, as painful as it was, that's the reason why he's able to go to the very heights because he renounced his own piety.
3: So you mentioned um, his suicide was like the death of our psychological something of that nature. But when I was reading Samuel Orr, like suicide's like a real (laughs) I mean, it makes sense. I mean, God made you doesn't, you don't, you shouldn't have the power to take that away. So I'm wondering, like, how does that You know, and then you mentioned that he goes kind of the highest, you know, divinity, but then he's by doing an act, it's kind of an act against divinity. So, symbol. It's
1: a symbol. Okay. So, Judas, the master, never killed himself. Okay. In the story, yes, it's a symbol that you have to hang yourself on the tree of knowledge. Okay.
3: So, it's a metaphorical death. Who
1: do you hang? Ego. Okay. Hang pride, lust, anger, lust, the The self. The self, the false self. Defects. To get, to get to, okay. Um. You know, obviously that, you know, there's also, in terms of mystical death, the death of oneself has been allegorized in many ways in different traditions. Even in the Japanese code of Bushido, where there was the ritual of seppuku, which literally was, you know, ritual suicide, that was a symbol before it degenerated. Now, obviously, you find that symbol in different uh, narratives or stories. Repeated again and again. It's not—it's not glorifying suicide, but it's a—it's a metaphor how that which we most love in ourselves has to go, and we have to be willing to face the pain of it to go higher.
4: Two um, things with the uh, seppuku. The kayashiku, the guy that—is that—is it really suicide, or is that—you know what I mean? There's a guy. There's a guy that.
1: Yeah. yeah, and in the Japanese, in the Japanese, in the Japanese uh, tradition, basically, our mind has to be decapitated, spiritually speaking, in the same way that John the Baptist was beheaded. His worldliness had to die. But obviously, you know, what happened with that tradition is that it devolved, degenerated. You know, these are symbols, but then people literally started to do these things out of, you know, misunderstandings.
4: So then you mentioned um, ego death in certain aspects, 12 disciples, a lot of them represent different pieces of the ego. Um, right. Would um, how, how does that work when somebody else among us is going through and walking through life and then utilizing people that may not understand so they can resolve those parts of themselves inside to become more pure, but then leaving people around them in like wake of um you know what I mean? Like they're like ripping out the pieces of that other person. How does that what is that
1: called So if I understand correctly, in a way our own spiritual work that we're doing psychologically in ourselves can mirror events. Right? Like what we're doing what like if I'm working psychologically on my anger then the circumstances that involve other people, which are provoking my anger is almost like a mirror. If I understand your, yeah. so in a way we face challenges in life, circumstances with other people that are orchestrated by Lucifer in the sense that our own inner divinity is giving us maybe a certain person in our life, maybe at work, maybe a spouse, maybe a family member who is intentionally provoking something in us that we need to see. And so in a way, these people are being used by divinity, are being introduced into our life so that we can see something very deeply. We may think that we have no anger, but then we might run into someone at our job who said something and it provokes. And then we suddenly see like a spark, like a fire, like being very agitated. And in a way, situations in life is like a gymnasium and Lucifer we call as the psychological trainer. He is intentionally bringing together the scenario, the ripe circumstances by which we have the opportunity to change. And then when we overcome a certain ordeal, instead of being angry at this person, understanding our own reactions, meditating, comprehending the anger and eliminating it. Then when that person arrives again, they continue saying what they're doing, but we're not provoked. And then suddenly the situations will be moved aside. It changes. The cosmic scenario changes based on our actions. And if we change intimately, deeply in ourselves, life will change. Circumstances, problems will go. There won't be any problem anymore. That's what we know. We're no longer suffering or repeating the same mistakes.
0: If you're doing this right,
2: then you should overcome your anger and you should have love towards those people, right? So I think in the scenario you're describing, it's almost as if you're describing a person who's going through and, like, intentionally picking somebody and, like, I'm going to get mad at them and, like, hurting that person. Is that kind of the sense?
4: If they're aware... um, So what... I guess I would equate it to, um, like, narcissistic trait-stealing. But if, if you were to... If it's if you're if they're aware of what they are like what they're trying to accomplish, then it wouldn't be that. But it would be more along the lines of trying to unlock certain selves
2: and then there's a give back ratio, I would assume, where they're attempting to unlock something for that other person. So both parties are, are knowing what they're trying to attempt in that process is what you're saying.
4: I would think that that would be the right way to go about it if they both know that they're going about it but in a lot of situations they
2: don't right and so people get hurt by feeling used in those cases i think that's quite different than what we're describing here then okay yeah because i think what we're describing is you're not you're not necessarily seeking it out like you're not saying let me go find something that somebody that you know i can work on my lust or i can work on my pride with but that these situations come about as part of life anyway. Like divinity kind of organizes the flow of events in your life, and then your spiritual work is your reaction to those events. And I think if you're doing it properly, you shouldn't be hurting people. I mean, initially when, when the ordeal comes upon you and you have a conflict with a person, obviously anybody who has a conflict with a person, there's, there's pain there. But I think that if you're working in the right way with this technique, you're seeing what in you is triggered. You're learning how to um, kind of transmute that from a vice into a virtue. And then by the end of that situation, you know, you feel the opposite of what that person originally brought out of you. So, you know, if they originally wounded your pride, like you see them again and you've worked on that. You feel humility. You feel like goodwill towards them and wanting to help them and so it should be a positive effect on the other person and if if those problems just start to disappear it's it's a sign that you've kind of accomplished what you needed to work on in yourself because as the problems are resolved then you know sometimes these people pass out of our lives you know not because we're trying to intentionally avoid them but just because that situation is resolved and um and then some other situation comes about for us to go into the next Part of what we have to work on, but I don't see it as an intentional like seeking out of people and using them for that kind of work. I think that that could be something that other people are doing, but I don't think yeah. it'd be the same as what, what we're what we're practicing here. So if somebody is going about and doing that, I call what? it black magic. Honestly, you're yeah. using other people for your own benefit, and you might be awakening some kind of conscious benefit, but if you're harming others in the process, um. That would be an egotistical work, right? You're using other people for your own benefit and you're not doing this um, to serve God. I mean, the selflessness involved in what we're describing where ordeals come about and you selflessly subject yourself to the suffering of life and learn to change through that and learn to take your anger, sacrifice it on the altar to God and become a person who's peaceful and serene and loving that is a service to divinity and to others. But just saying, like, I want to become a powerful, awakened, spiritual, integrated person, and then I'm going out and I'm seeking people and I'm pulling things out of them and leaving them in the dust as a result sounds more to me like it's driven by ego and pride, spiritual ambition, and yeah. wouldn't be... If
3: it's the purpose. Yeah,
2: it wouldn't be an act of white magic in that case to be active act of what, what, um, magic.
4: Are there new age philosophies that would fit the latter, the black magic aspect of what we're talking about? Well, there's
2: all kinds of black magic in several new age philosophies. I'm not saying all, but yeah, I'm not an expert on those practices, but...
1: There's a saying, the devil, there's a saying, the devil has his tail everywhere. Really, any tradition, you find it in Gnosis, you find it in Judaism, Islam, Sufism, Christianity... People who are taking the light of Luciferos and strengthening the ego. And what would be
4: the proper response?
2: Protect
1: yourself. Protect yourself. There are different techniques we use to prayers to invoke divinity so as to reject any uh, influence. We can study a course we gave called Spiritual Defense. Yeah, and we use techniques to nullify those, any influence which yeah. may seek to harm us.
2: And also karma, understanding karma, because you know in this tradition we teach about um, return and recurrence. That you know we're kind of reliving the same thing. You know if we wronged someone in a past life, it's going to come back. Now, you know this isn't like condoning abuse, like you deserve to be abused or anything. You should absolutely protect yourself if somebody's that kind of manipulative um, attitude towards it. But also, as as we're suffering, we try to understand and learn something from that. And I think a good foundation in understanding karma is really useful when we go through pain at the hands of others, which happens, unfortunately, a lot in our modern world, right? Um, so I think using those situations to see something new and to learn from it is, is useful.
1: Or lastly, to that point, divinity is the best manager. In terms of looking for trouble, we don't need to. Trust me. The influence of Lucifer in our life, organizing and orchestrating things, is uh, enough. Divinity knows how to handle and give us what we need, and knows our limit. So, we will never receive an ordeal in this work that is beyond our our scope, something that we can't handle. I believe there's even an injunction in the New Testament with uh, Saint Paul that Divinity never gives us more than we can handle.
3: Islam says the same thing. Right only tests us to what we can what
1: we can do because what kind of trainer would at the gym would give you a number of reps or weight to do that you can't do it would look the tra- the trainer would look bad so
3: um i have a question about why i mean this may be going into um kind of the history of it but why did kind of the let's say the catholic um leave this out i feel like the book of judas is a I mean, a good book to learn from, you know, I mean, eventually, essentially in the Catholic era and the Christian religion, everyone was trying to aspire to be Christ-like, right? And right. I feel like the book of Judas is teaching that, like, you all have a role. Um, why do they, why do they leave it out? Why is it, so.
1: Traditions will solidify with time. Usually in the beginning of any movement, you'll find that there are different, people and actors and characters in the scenario of the establishment of religion, in which the original teachings of a prophet become codified. While it's necessary to provide structure to students and initiates, the problem is with time, these traditions calcify. They become petrified, stone, and then they'll break. And over the millennia, traditions become, while a, a vehicle of divine teaching, imperfect. Maybe some parts break off or some authors feel that certain aspects of a tradition do not correlate with what they interpret and this has been the great problem with any faith you find this happening in the gnostic movement too there are people who edit the works of samuel and Veor because they feel like some aspects of his, his writings are not palatable and so they just leave it out and they have a price that they will have to pay for that because if you deny people the full depth of a teaching from divinity we are proving basically we're we're like Judas the ego we're betraying the light we love god we love tradition but in a sense we're almost like Caiaphas another demon you know the one who who led the pr- prosecution against jesus he's a high priest he's very attached to his religion and traditions but hates christ because christ is the power of innovation and it's a weird dynamic where you have this constantly renewing source, this transcendent aspect of being that manifests throughout time and culture. But obviously the problem with culture and time is that people change and therefore they adapt or adopt or adulterate. And with the Catholic church, while beautiful, beautiful tradition. There are many aspects of every religion that we respect because they're very sacred. They represent, Parts of divinity and teachings of divinity throughout time. And every group and people need its uh, traditions and its its guidance. The problem becomes if we are not actively seeking to renovate our own understandings and deepen our experience and relationship with divinity, then we just get stuck in tradition. It's like we just repeat what someone said, or maybe we disagree or we cut out certain things. And this is why with the gospel of Judas, it's like, this flies flies right in the face of 2,000 years of belief in that Judas was a traitor. And so that's a huge contradiction in a worldview. And there's certain comfort to be found in a belief system, which is fine. The problem becomes if we don't look at all the facts of what these all represent in context. You know, but... In one sense, we respect all traditions, but, you know, the Catholic Church, unfortunately, you know, they, you know, like at any movement, there's problems.
0: Killed off the opposition,
3: right? It looks like, it's like Dostoevsky and the Grand Inquisitor, right?
1: Where Christ was, he you know, comes, comes back, comes the Church
3: is like, no thanks, we got it from here.
1: <laughs> and then, at the very end, the Grand Inquisitor leaves the door open for him to leave. And that's the great amb- ambiguity. The beautiful thing about that is that, at least while the Catholic Church has denied Christ, the door is still open. And that's the beauty of any tradition that there's remnants of teachings that are relevant, which is why in our school we study multiple sources, whether Hinduism, Kabbalah, Egyptian mythology, to extract the synthesis, the root. Sure.
4: Um, you mentioned Kaiphas and um... I think in some of the books, M.A.L. on Weir talks about there being, you know, three traitors of Christ. There's Kaiphas, Pontius Pilate, and Judas, each representing a different evil. I think one of them is evil mind, evil will, um, and some third thing Is there anything that you can um, tell us about that?
1: Absolutely. So three traitors. Caiapha, Pilate, Judas Pilate, Caiaphas. We have what are known in Gurdjieff studies: three brains, mm-hmm. intellect, emotion, sexuality, instinct. instinct. So the last, so the last brain, the motor, instinctive, sexual brain, is a brain of action. So physiologically, we have aspects in our nervous system and our psyche, our body, that help us process food, energy light. In a sense, a brain is not merely a physical entity, but it is a machine. It processes like an engine certain forces, both physical and spiritual. Our intellectual brain, when it malfunctions, when it doesn't work properly, when it arrives with its thoughts of justification, maybe we do something wrong and we wash our hands. I'm not responsible. That's pilot. It's an authority in the mind that says, I'm right and I'm not responsible for what happened. We do this all the time. We have the demon of the emotional brain relating to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is a type of malfunction of the heart in which one hates, but in a religious way. Because Caiaphas is a high priest. He loves tradition, his Judaism, but he hates Christ. In a way, that can be one of the most intense forms of, you know, malfunction in which we love maybe our sense of pride and self over divinity. And lastly is Judas in the motor instinct of sexual brain, the demon of temptation, the demon of sex. I mean, the demon of, uh, is an apostle. In the when the motor instinct of sexual brain is not utilized for the spirit, when we don't use our energies for divinity, if we waste it through passion, we deplete ourselves. And that's temptation. Judas sells, Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And silver alchemically relates to the moon, lunar forces. And we know that Christ is the sun, the source of life. And the moon is our own ego, our dead habits that we repeat again and again. So Judas is a demon of, of a desire who loves the sensations or attachments to sex at the expense of Christ. Because we know from the perfect matrimony that you know, the sacred union can be transformed into a sacrament, where we're born again. But if we love our lust more, and we're not purifying ourselves, we're just Judas. So we betray God in all three brains, intellect, emotions, and sex. And even Peter, when was asked during the crucifixion of Christ, aren't you one of his apostles? He denies him three times. Before the cock crows twice, you should deny me thrice. Three brains. And this is happens in every initiate we maybe we use one brain more than the others and in a wrong way and that's why we're tempted in certain ways and we, we have certain weaknesses in certain aspects of ourselves but we deny god all the time with justifying ourselves and the intellect hating divinity by not doing what we need to do and being attached to passion three brains but obviously we use the three traitors in that way you find it in all religions too i mean Masonry, the three traitors of Hiram Aviv, the three daughters of Mar, the tempted Buddha. It's the same, same teaching. Yeah. But um, that's the malfunctioning of the three brains that we want to balance. So thank you. <laughs>